Can we talk something else? Can, can we talk about something else? Welcome back. This is Speck. Final. Richard Speck has already had a wild evening by any depraved criminal standards, but he has no intention of slowing down on this night. Once done with his burger and fries, a meal of which you'll recall was unjustly paid for by Ella May, who has indeed decided to stay quiet about Speck's attack upon her, he heads back to his room where he changes into a red polo shirt and black slacks. He then trots back down to the shipyard inn's lounge, looking for more trouble. By this point, the bar is filling with thirsty, hard-working men, and Speck immediately goes into tough guy mode. He orders a whiskey coke and surveys the room, focusing on the pool table where two men and a woman are shooting stick. When the drone of conversation lulls for a moment, Speck lets a switchblade fall from his pocket, and the following thud freezes the room. Those who look over see a tall, well-built, but slimy-looking character with a witch's face slowly bend down to retrieve his weapon. Speck then picks up his drink and struts across the room, scratching at his stomach to lift his shirt and reveal the twenty-two in his waistband, as well as a long hunting knife that hangs from a scabbard attached to his belt. He puts some hillbilly music on the jukebox, then sits down at a booth facing the billiard table and smokes slowly, scoffing at misplays until the group finishes up and sits down close by. Speck gets up and another man meets him at the table, also wanting a game. Now it's time to really turn some heads. Speck was a bit of a shark. He'd spent more than his fair share of time around a pool table and easily dispatched of his opponent before plopping back down in the booth where he begins eyeballing one of the men who had been playing previously and now sits alone as his friends are at the bar. When the man inevitably asks Speck what the fuck he's looking at, Speck pulls the gun and holds it under the table so only his confronter can see. He cocks the hammer and the man jumps out of his booth and comes at Speck, his leg in a cast, which... Speck apparently hadn't noticed, and as the man furiously approaches, Speck begins to backpedal. He puts the gun away and starts apologizing, saying he didn't realize the guy's leg was broken. The man doesn't see how this makes any difference, and it doesn't. Speck's just buying time. He wasn't prepared to be confronted. The gun should have scared the man, but all it did was infuriate him. He berates Speck, telling him he's in the wrong part of town to be pulling that shit. Speck offers to buy some drinks, which calms the situation somewhat. Soon enough, he's charmed his way into this apparent animal's good graces and is at a booth with the group he'd focused on from the beginning, spinning tails as per usual, but buying the drinks. The psychology behind this situation is interesting. Speck always leads with the tough guy act, because if it works, he can easily continue to pile on the bullshit and eventually befriend those who he's inspired fear in. On the other hand, when things backfire, Speck has no problem backing down and playing the beaten man role. His endgame's always the same acceptance. If you read into this behavior correctly, you'll find what Speck truly was. A coward. One of Speck's former probation officers had this to say about him. Quote, 
When Speck is drinking, he will fight or threaten anybody, as long as he has a knife or a gun. When he's sober or unarmed, he couldn't face down a mouse. End quote. Speck manages to fit in as the night wears on, speaking to fellow shipmen and swapping war stories. All of Speck's are, of course, fabricated on the spot, but bullshitting is his favorite pastime, so he's in his glory. One of the men offers Speck an injection of speed, which he gladly accepts. Soon after, around 10.20 p.m., Speck is flying high but low on funds. He's last seen by those he interacted with this night, standing at the bar with one foot on the rail, smiling broadly at nothing in particular. Speck slips out of the bar, his goofy smile curdling into a salacious grin as his alcohol and speed-infused thoughts shake out the bones of a plan to re-up his cash supply. He climbs the stairs to his dumpy little dwelling where he changes into a black corduroy jacket and takes off the bulky hunting knife. He gathers some extra t-shirts and shoves them into a bag that makes sure he's armed with his switchblade and recently acquired pistol. Dressed for a funeral, Speck exits the building and blends into the night. He walks for a half an hour until he arrives at Luella Park, a place he had previously spent some time napping while waiting for a ship to take him on from the neighboring hiring hall. It's around 11 p.m. when Speck emerges from the park and strides up to the back of the most secluded of the three nursing dorms he's been casing over the last month or so. Unit 2319 appears to be without any life on the downstairs floor. He notices light coming from the second, which is exactly how he pictured things to be at this time. Speck quickly pops open a window with his knife and slides the screen over. He then reaches in with a long arm to unlock the back door and enters. The house is silent but he can sense that it's far from empty. There's dim light illuminating a landing and the occasional discreet sound from above indicating that those who occupy the home are settling in for the night. Speck silently creeps up the stairs to where six student nurses are either sleeping or getting ready to do so. Cora Amareo is finishing up her prayers when she hears a light knock at her bedroom door. She casually opens to find not one of her fellow nurses as expected, but Richard Speck in all his ghoulish glory. Speck levels a gun at the frightened young woman and holds a finger to his lips. He enters and grabs Cora by the forearm, then wakes her roommate, Merlita Gargulo. He calmly asks the two Filipino exchange students to lead him to the rest of the house's occupants. With a gun to their backs, the pair of frightened women silently rouse a third fellow Filipino named Valentina Passion. Speck corrals the three terrified students to the back bedroom where three more nurses sleep. Pat Matuzik, Pamela Wilkening, and Nina Schmael. The three Filipinos rush to a corner closet and shut the door behind them in a panic. Speck looks on amused and asks one of the American nurses to please retrieve them from the closet. He promises that no one will be hurt. He just needs some money to get to New Orleans. Speck hasn't been able to convince the Filipinos, who maybe sense the bad intentions Speck harbors beneath his southern drawl and charming demeanor. The Americans immediately go into de-escalation mode and match Speck's cadence. They calmly coax the girls from the closet, relaying the message that everything will be okay as long as everyone cooperates, and hiding in plain sight isn't doing anything other than possibly directing this deranged man to Frustration Street. There was a disconnect between the American and Filipino nurses. Besides the language barrier and the cultural differences, the exchange students were paid for the training, whereas the Americans were still paying, which likely led to some unspoken friction. In the book on this case, Crime of the Century, by Dennis Brea and William Martin, it suggested that an absence of cohesiveness between the two groups likely contributed to a lack of teamwork versus the intruder, and I couldn't agree more with this insight. The six women were split down the middle, and the result was similar to that of one mind at odds with itself. In decision-making, there are three choices, the right choice, the wrong choice, and then, of course, the hopeless option, 
no choice at all. An insecure mind often opts to stand still and go with the flow. In this situation, Speck was the flow, and his flow always, inevitably, led to a waterfall. The girls emerge begrudgingly from the closet, and Speck instructs the group to sit with their backs to some dressers that are positioned beneath a window that's illuminated by light from nearby Luella Park. He then cuts the lights in the room, and now the only sign of him being there is the ember from his freshly lit cigarette. The six women are all dressed in thin nightwear. Speck leers at them from the darkness, then begins to speak in his smooth southern drawl. The room has three bunk beds in it, but Speck doesn't bother to do the math. He's too busy entertaining and believes he has the house under control. Like a grandfather telling a bedtime story, Speck slowly begins to put his captives at ease. He tells them his bullshit stories about his time at sea and slowly begins to cut the bed sheets into strips with his switchblade as he does so. The nurses have been trained to keep their patients calm, so Speck has disarmed the group without much effort. This is his regular way. The strips of three-foot cloth he begins to accrue about his neck are of mild concern. He's calm, so they are too. Once he's done preparing the binding, Speck asks the girls for their money. He makes the whole group walk to each room to collect, and suddenly someone can be heard talking downstairs. The girls assure Speck that it's just another nurse who has returned home and is calling into the house mother for check-in. Footsteps soon ascend the stairs, and Speck quietly sets himself in front of the bedroom door and places his heavy hand on the doorknob. When the knob turns, Speck yanks the door open, startling young Gloria Davy, who has just returned from a date with her fiancé. She screams when Speck emerges from the dark room, gun drawn. Gloria is pushed towards the others and told to sit, but not before having her purse rummaged through. Gloria tells Speck she has change in there as well, to which Speck turns his hideous nose. He only wants paper. Now sit. Despite his rough treatment, he's decided that Gloria is his favorite thus far. Speck is now on edge. He takes a binding from around his neck and calmly asks Pamela Wilkening to present her ankles. She does so, not without hesitance, and Speck begins calmly tying her up. As he does, he reiterates that he means them no harm. He just needs control over the situation to make himself feel better about completing the robbery without incident. The Nazi ties are expertly done. Speck has learned some things at sea after all. Pamela is soon helpless. Her ankles are bound together, then connected to her wrists, which are tied behind her back. He moves methodically, trying not to alarm the women. They comply in an attempt not to set off their assailant. A perfect storm, and a situation I originally learned to avoid from the BTK case. Never let someone tie you up, unless they're wearing a mask. There might be a t-shirt right there. Repeat that to your loved ones. Please, never let someone tie you up, unless they're wearing a mask. <laughs> Hashtag stay paranoid. As Speck begins to tie up Patricia Matuzic, the fourth nurse thus far, the doorbell rings. Speck gathers up Merlita, Gargulo, and Cora Amareo, the remaining untied girls, the smallest of the group, not coincidentally, and forces them downstairs at gunpoint to answer. Cora opens the door, but nobody's there. It had been a nurse from a neighboring unit, looking to borrow some bread for a late-night sandwich, but she'd left when no one immediately answered her ring. Speck hustles his captives back upstairs. He's sufficiently spooked now and quickly ties the rest of them up. Speck then unties Pamela Wilkening's ankles, the nurse who he identifies as being the biggest threat, and without a word, leads her from the room, closing the door behind them. At this point, another ring almost resounds through the dorm. Kathy Emmons, a fellow nurse, again from a neighboring unit, has her boyfriend slowly drive past 2319 to see if anyone is still up. She wants to return a typewriter she's borrowed from Nina Schmale, but the house appears to be silent. Unfortunately, Kathy decides it can wait until the next day. Had she rang the bell, it's possible Speck could have met his end. Kathy and her boyfriend both carried guns. 
she would have had a loaded derringer in her purse, and if Speck had pushed an alarm-eyed girl to the door again, it's quite possible Kathy would have picked up on something, and those who knew her were certain she wouldn't have hesitated to take care of business. Speck moves Pamela Wilkening to a far room, almost out of earshot from the closed back bedroom, where six hogtied nurses bicker at each other in hushed tones as to what to do. The Filipinos want to push a lamp out the window to alarm somebody. The Americans vote to stay calm and ride out the situation. The right move, according to training, by the way. Their textbooks had not yet been influenced by a monster such as Speck, however. And in the far room, his mask of charm and cool confidence is melting before their fellow nurse's eyes. I made a controversial judgment in episode 3 of season 1, where I expressed my view that telling your captor you're going to make them pay is a bonehead move. I'm hesitant to go down that road again here, not because I think I was wrong, but because I now realize that the fact that I wasn't there should be reason enough to keep my opinion to myself. Regardless, I flinched when I learned that as Speck began to prepare Pamela Wilkening to be raped, she apparently spit in his face and vowed she would someday point him out of a lineup. This enraged Speck, but before he could begin beating on her, he hears the door open downstairs. Suzanne Ferris and Mary Ann Jordan, the final two nurses expected home that night, enter the house just before the 12.30 curfew and call themselves in. They then rush upstairs and discover Speck standing over their friend, who is now not only bound but gagged, and has been stripped and spread eagle. Seeing this, the two young women scream, then run down the hall into the back bedroom where they stumble upon the fresh terror of their friends tied up and on the floor of the room, looking up at them and blinking against the light. Speck enters with the gun raised and orders the two girls out of the room. He shuts off the light and quietly closes the door, then hustles Suzanne and Mary back to where Pamela lays helpless. Speck attempts to talk the girls into allowing him to tie them up as well, but having gleaned what was about to befall their friend before they appeared, the two nurses fight. Speck pulls his knife, later admitting that he did so to avoid the noise a gun blast would have made, and begins his rampage. He first stabs Marianne in her left eye, then plunges the knife into a hysterical Suzanne Ferris. By the end of it, he has stabbed Marianne three times in the chest and once in the throat, killing her, while he goes completely insane with rage on Marianne, stabbing her a total of 18 times, 11 in her chest, and 7 times in the back and side. He then strangles the dying nurse, while a terrified and helpless Pamela Wilkening looks on. Speck decides that he needs to hurry this whole mess up, and stands over Pamela with the knife, then with precision, slips the blade into the helpless woman's heart. Three of the nine nurses now lay dead. Speck cleans off his knife, heads to the bathroom to wash up, and changes his blood-soaked shirt with one of the fresh ones he's brought along in case things got messy. Speck returns to the back room and calmly enters. He doesn't want to panic the remaining captives. Nina Schmale is chosen next. Her ankle bindings are cut, and she's escorted from the room. Soon the expulsion of the noise, or word, quote, ah, reaches the ears of the final five women, and they begin to panic, shuffling in all directions of the room, trying to squeeze themselves under the beds. The smallest of them, Cora Amareo, is the only one who manages to get under a bed. The rest press themselves into corners like fish seeking water that's escaping a cracked aquarium. They hear Speck washing up again, and everyone save Gloria Davy, who has fallen asleep, likely as a reaction to the stress of the situation, panic openly. One by one, Speck quickly and wordlessly begins to take women from the room, diligently washing off as he systematically rids the scene of witnesses. Soon Cora Amareo is the only one left in the room. Gloria Davy has been saved for last, and Cora has just heard her be awoken by Speck. Speck says to the recently awoken woman, quote, Have you ever done this before? He rapes her once, then picks her up and carries her out of the room. 
Cora is alone for a long while and decides to switch beds at some point, realizing that she's too exposed where she currently hides. She just manages to silently worm her way under another bed when Speck re-enters, turns on the lights, and rummages through Gloria Davies' purse for those coins he earlier claimed were of no interest to him. He then cuts the lights and exits the room. Four and a half hours since Speck broke into the residence, he exits the front of the unit at around 3.30 a.m. He doesn't even bother to shut the door behind him. Rosetta Stone, everybody. You know, for a long time, I've been wanting to go to Japan, but the thing holding me back is that I'm intimidated by the language. And that's why I've been going pretty hard at the Rosetta Stone service. I want to be able to take my girl to Japan, a place that she's always wanted to go, and suddenly just start speaking fluent Japanese at the restaurant. That's my goal. (laughs) Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on a desktop or as an app, and it truly immerses you in the language you want to learn. It's been a trusted expert for 30 years with millions of users, 25 languages offered. It's fast language acquisition. Rosetta Stone immerses you in a bunch of ways. Uh, There's an intuitive process where you pick up the language naturally, first with words and phrases, then sentences. They have the speech recognition feature. Built-in true accent gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Uh, It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. It's convenient, and it's an amazing value, especially with this offer here. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Dark Topic listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today. Today. Speck crosses a bridge that traverses the Calumet River on his way back to the shipyard inn and tosses his blade into the deep waters. The lights of the Chicago skyline are visible to him as he performs what has to be one of the most epic walks of shame in history. It's pre-dawn when he crawls under the sheets. He takes a swig of stale beer that sits at his bedside and, without much thought, falls asleep. About an hour after Speck drifts off, alarm clocks begin going off one by one in the horror house he's casually created. Cora and Moreo still lay stiffly in her hiding spot, too terrified to move, but the fact that the alarms, which are becoming eerie and unbearable, aren't being silenced, gives her enough confidence to begin shuffling out from under the bed. She manages to work her bindings loose by rocking back and forth, and soon she's creeping into the hallway, where evidence of the horror in the rooms upstairs lay strewn about. She focuses on getting to her room, and when she finally makes it there on tiptoe, she discovers three of her friends laying dead before her. She quietly steps over them and manages to climb her bunk and open a window. She then summons the courage to begin yelling for help. She hollers for five minutes, then decides to climb out the window in case the assailant is still in the house. On a landing below the window, Cora screams for another 20 minutes before a fellow nurse from a neighboring unit hears the strained cries and opens her own window to get a better listen. It's clear what's being said now. Cora is desperately yelling, quote, They're all dead. Help. They're all dead. End quote. The nurse runs over to 2319 and enters the open front door. Gloria Davy is in plain sight. She's naked, bound, gagged, and strangled by a strip of bed sheet. She hangs off of a couch slightly and the nurse checks for life. There's no sign of it. The head nurse enters as Cora makes her way down the stairs unsteadily. She's met by a nurse and through tears tells her not to go up there. He might still be in the house. And they're all dead anyways. 
The nurses check and find Suzanne Ferris, Mary Ann Jordan, and Pamela Wilkening in the northeast bedroom. I've described their murders already. In the northwest bedroom, they find three more. Nina Jo Schmale is naked, bound, and strangled. It appears as though her attacker used a ligature at first, but then opted to suffocate her with a pillow that still sits over her face. There are knife pricks all over her neck, indicating that her attacker... Why am I playing that game? That that Speck had terrorized Nina before raping and murdering her. Valencia Passion lies face down on the floor, bound. Her head is surrounded by a halo of blood, the result of having her throat cut so deep she's halfway decapitated. Laying across Valencia is Merlita Gargulo. She has a strip of bed sheet knotted tightly around her neck, a neck which has been dislocated and stabbed four times. Speck has covered these two women with a blue-flowered quilt. Patricia Matuzic is discovered in the bathroom, bound and partially naked. She's been strangled by a strip of bed sheet as well. Her midsection is black from a vicious kick Speck laid into her. The head nurse takes all this in, and along with some of the dead's fellow student nurses, checks each for any sign of life. There's none. She then calls the hospital and tells the operator, quote, My God, all my girls in 19 have been murdered. The operator asks for the girls' names, to which the nurse screams, don't ask me now, get me help. All we see are blood and dead girls. End quote. The press descend upon the massacre. By the time Richard Speck wakes up and begins piecing together the previous night, his actions have been dubbed the crime of the century. Speck cleans himself up and heads to a bar named Pete's Tap, where he slaps ten bucks on the table and demands a watch that he previously pawned for drinks to be returned. The cost is seven dollars, so Speck begins drinking with the remaining three. As the patrons around him gossip over the morning's headlines, Speck hears that the title of the Chicago Tribune reads, in thick black ink, quote, Eight nurses are strangled. He puffs up a little with pride until he hears the follow-up news that there is a survivor, a woman who hid under a bed, and she's currently providing information for a composite sketch of the crazed sex maniac who slaughtered these eight young women. Speck blanches when he hears that the current details on this man are that he stands around six feet, weighs about 160 pounds, is pockmarked, and has a southern drawl. Speck leaves the bar and grabs a cab that he directs to an even seedier part of Chicago, wisely realizing that escape from the city is likely impossible, and his best course of action is to melt in with the bums and the destitute. His true identity is soon realized. There aren't many people who frequent the area around the murder scene who fit Speck's uh, backs, <clears throat> if you dig. The walls are closing in. Speck's photo that was taken for his merchant seaman card is quickly being handed out to every bar owner across the city of Chicago. His tattoo that reads, Born to Raise Hell, becomes an identifying point of much interest. Speck checks himself into the cheapest rooming house he can find, and he sits down in a room surrounded by fellow lushes who only use newspapers to wipe their behinds and begins emptying a cheap bottle of booze down his throat. When it's finished, he smashes the bottle and cuts his arm up with it in a sloppy suicide attempt. The wounds aren't fatal, but he does nick an artery, and soon he's bleeding enough to draw the attention of those who surround his chicken-wire-fenced room. He begins bothering those around him for water. Finally, someone complains to a maintenance man about Speck's whining and profuse bleeding. The man calls for an ambulance, and Speck is finally found out when the surgeon discovers the already infamous tattoo beneath Speck's blood-caked arm. Richard Speck's wild ride through the free world is over. In court, the sole survivor, Cora Amareo, walks right up to Speck when asked to identify the man she escaped that night and points into his slack, bewildered face. Her conviction, anger, and steady flawless testimony is more than enough to convince jurors of Speck's guilt. The trial lasts 12 days. 
Speck does not deny having committed the crime. He only says that he can't recall what happened that night due to having received an injection of speed and overdrinking. On April 15, 1967, Speck is found guilty of all eight murders after less than an hour of jury deliberation. The judge swiftly sentences him to death. On death row, Speck lasts only four days. The surrounding inmates pester their new celebrity inmate day and night, whispering to him all the horrible things that are about to befall him in prison. Speck cracks up and is transferred to solitary confinement, where he requests paint to touch up his living quarters, and after doing a good job of it, is soon tasked to paint the halls of the prison. As time goes on, Speck earns more and more freedom throughout the Chicago State Correctional. His death sentence is dropped after an appeal. It turns out that many prospective jurors in this case were discounted due to their religious or personal beliefs against capital punishment, so instead of death, Speck's sentence is reduced to 1,200 years. Of course, he still is granted parole hearings because of this, and the family of these girls are dragged into court from time to time to relive this tragedy, a crime in itself. Speck becomes known as the drunken painter of Statesville. He brews raisins in his cell and manages to keep himself drunk and eventually high throughout his stay in prison. Chicago Statesville prison was far from club-fed, but Speck still managed to carve out a life there. He became a prison queen after having hormones smuggled in and developed breasts, C-cups, at least by the looks of things. He wore silk panties beneath his painter's coveralls and sunk deep into the subculture of prison, becoming a trading piece for the jail's gangs who used him to move drugs around while he painted and had their way with him whenever they liked. In exchange, Speck stayed high and drunk constantly. A video released from the prison to Illinois Congress in 1996 shows Speck hanging out with his friends, snorting coke and speaking of his crimes. He's clearly a prison bitch but seems to have embraced the role obviously as a survival technique. Speck walks around in the video like Buffalo Bill's naked grandmother. He admits to his crimes at one point and shows zero remorse, saying clearly that the reason the nurses died was because it, quote, just wasn't their night. Gang members boss him around, and he's told to perform oral sex in a fellow inmate at one point, which he does willingly enough, reacting as if he's just been asked by an abusive father to put his dishes away. He hops to it. Many say that Speck enjoyed his time in prison before dying of a heart attack the day before his 50th birthday, December 5, 1991, but I'm not so sure. I don't believe that becoming a prison bitch was a point of pride for him. Speck likely hated himself so much that he embraced the abuse he was subjected to in prison. Nineteen years of all the horrible things men worry about when considering being put in jail was what he endured. Speck was even bullied into morphing his body to suit the needs of his abusers. Rock bottom is different for each of us. Being the cocky, tough, respect-seeking guy Speck was, I think, in prison he certainly found his. And if you think drinking raisin brew and the occasional line of extremely cut cocaine while being raped daily by multiple men because you've been forced to look like a melted statue of a female is a good life, then you're wrong. He paid a little bit. Rest easy on that. Dark Topic is an 1159 media production. To support on Patreon, visit patreon.com slash darktopicpod. For merch, or just to reach out, visit darktopicpodcast.com. Music